bored king spies married woman on rooftop with her husband at war. King summons woman. King seduces woman. Woman becomes pregnant to cover his tracks. King summons husband back from war. Husband does not cooperate. King arranges to have husband die in battle. King marries woman. That may sound like a plot line for a primetime soap opera, but it's actually the prelude to our text this morning. This is the third of three Sundays on David, the most prominent figure in the Old Testament. We had David, the writer of Psalms of Praise. Last Sunday, we had David, the slayer of Goliath. And now we have this. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought, which he had brought it up and, and grew it up with him and with his children. And he used, used to eat his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man who was loath to take one of his own flock to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me. And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the very son. For you did it secretly, but I do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child that is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There isn't a person in this room who isn't familiar, isn't knows the familiar uh, formula that leads finally to the line, and they lived happily ever after. 
Before happily ever after, dragons have been fought, deadly curses broken, all sorts of efforts exerted. Then suddenly, Prince Charming meets Sleeping Beauty. They find each other, like coming out of a choppy sea into a tranquil port. They live happily ever after. We might be tempted to take from fairy tales that the morning of life, the earliest part of life, is the time of turbulence. But once that a person has finished sort of getting arranged in life, getting settled in life, finished his or her education, chosen a vocation, fought a dragon, slain a giant, then it's all smooth sailing. But a funny thing happens on the way to the end of fairy tales. And the Bible makes the point that adulthood is not a time in life when we can effortlessly live happily ever after. If adolescence is the most intense stage along the way, adulthood is the most challenging. Finding meaningful contributions to make to the world, nurturing significant relationships, and of finding this lifelong quest to discover who we really are. Another way of saying that is in our lives we search for work to do and others to love and a self to be. But, but if we end up giving a vast majority of our time and effort to just one of those three and neglecting the others, things get very shaky in the midst of our lives. The author Gail Sheehy once described a 46-year-old TV newscaster who had climbed to the top of his profession. However, he wasn't as satisfied or as fulfilled as you might think just looking on from the outside. The newscaster one day said, I am near the top of the mountain that I saw as a young person and began to climb, but lo and behold, it's not snow up here at the top, it's salt that burns the wounds inflicted in the effort to get to the top. It turns out that going down a mountain is very different than what it takes to climb it. Where, as that celebrity, are the navigational charts for descent? Now, this all may seem like a very 21st century, self-absorbed way of looking at things. But 3,000 years ago, David likewise was out of balance in his life. And the results for him and for all around him were catastrophic. King David, legend of the Old Testament, was not very good at being an adult. The verses right before our, this text give us all the clues we need. The prelude to David and Bathsheba's encounter begins wistfully in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab, but David remained in Jerusalem. David was not adept at navigating adulthood. It's incredible how quickly David rose from the obscurity of tending sheep to being the uncontrolled ruler of everything from the Nile to the Euphrates. A personnel manager for a national firm I once knew said the first thing she tried to do to determine about a new executive trainee was how quickly she could separate the doers from the beers. The doers got moved up the decision-making hierarchy. The beers tended to get left behind. David is the classic example of a doer. 
But his doing early on, if you'll remember the last two Sundays and what you know, his doing early on was in service totally of the God who called him and who sent him into the world. Guided by God's spirit, David continued to remain loyal to the unscrupulous King Saul who treated David unmercifully. And when Saul and his son were king killed in battle, David didn't rub his hands together and say, it served the old scoundrel right. With all Israel, David joined in genuine mourning. And it was that lack of vindictiveness that led the northern tribes who were ruled by Saul to ask David to be their ruler as well. David could have made his own hometown the new capital, but that wouldn't have unified the country. Instead, David conquered this former Jebusite stronghold called Jerusalem. Israel had never held Jerusalem before, but he made that neutral site the center of their new beginnings. That was David's greatest strength. He avoided the trap of wanting everything to be about him, everything to serve him. And instead, he genuinely, guided by God, wanted to serve others. David then is a real model in some ways for work to do and in making a difference in the world by giving himself. And as long as it was God's work, David thrived. But at some point along this life, along this narrative, success upon success upon success, slowly, imperceptibly, it all became not about God's work, but about David's work, about David's projects, about David's agenda, about David's glory, about David's power. And his life not only become unbalanced, It became unhinged. Oscar Wilde once wrote, it's tragic how few people ever possess their own soul before they die. It seems like a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to be something other than who they are. As David lost intimacy with God in his quest for his agenda, his control, his power, his glory, he lost a sense that he was at heart God's child. The call of God to each of us is a unique call, yet it's so easy to have that unique call be drowned out by all the voices and all the distractions of our life. Do you realize that there are more suicides that occur on Saturdays or Sundays than all the other days of the week put together? When life has been structured by other things, other voices, other agendas all week, and suddenly the individual is left to decide things freely. Many of us are so unskilled at listening to the unique call of God, let alone our innermost thoughts, we break. As in what happened to David when he did not go to battle one spring as he had been doing for years and years. When the structure of his external habits were removed, He didn't know what to do with himself. It was during just such a season that David first saw Bathsheba from his rooftop. The cultivation and care of one's own God-created soul is utterly important, and if we neglect it, we die. 
in the great growth challenges of adulthood to find work to do and others to love and a self to be, we discover sooner or later that we cannot do any single one of those on our own. One thing is obvious. Life is not like fairy tales. We will live happily ever after only to the degree we work to understand that God is shaping our lives with work to do. God is shaping our lives with others to love. God is shaping our lives with a self that God gives us to be. Congregations also have life cycles. It's not just for David or for you or for me. The challenges of adulthood are ever present for churches as well. Adulthood for churches, no less than for people, is not a time when we can put things on automatic pilot or effortlessly just live happily ever after. It's not a time in adulthood for a congregation to, to devolve into busy work or distracted exploits at the expense of others or distracted energy at the expense of our relationship with God who actually has been quite specific about what our life should be together. It should be a life shaped by God with purpose and with vulnerability and with trust in God and with trust in one another, both in terms of pressures and possibilities Adulthood for a congregation is the most stressful time in life. Churches, too, need work to do and others to love and a self to be. Now, the work to do, it seems obvious enough. There are children to nurture and youth to guide. There are committees uh, to meet and things to get organized and baptisms to do and mission to serve. Almost everyone I can see in this room is good at work. We know how to do work. But of course, that's not the only work a congregation is called to do. How do we give ourselves away for the life of the world? How do we give ourselves away? How do we avoid the traps of control and anxiety when they seem to work so well in the rest of our lives? How are we bold to depend on God's strength so we can act and decide and work? not our own strength? How do we enact a life together with a complete humility that knows that we are not complete unless we are open and appreciative receivers of the wisdom about God from those who come from very different stations in society than most of the people we meet in Westlake Hills? Those who we would call uncredentialed those who are unsuccessful in the eyes of the world, those that we would call needy. Often for churches reaching maturity, these are our finest teachers, lest we come to believe that we know it all. Of others to love, there's strength there too, and also an important challenge. The more we love, we find that love is not an abstract idea, but something specific. The more we love, the more needs we see in others, in ourselves, in the world. We need to love each other enough to live through failure. We need to love each other enough to accept one another's differences and see that God is knitting us together nevertheless. We need to love each other enough to talk about Jesus 
instead of talking about the conventional wisdom of strive and consume, which passes as the world's wisdom. We need to love each other enough to always, always, always look wider to see who else we're supposed to love, who's not here. We need to love each other and love God enough to choose God for study and prayer and worship and stewardship and mutual caring and service when the world tells us that there's a lot better things you could be doing with your time. And we need to do it getting out of safe zones, which in this culture are largely suffocating. And to listen to challenging voices, which will nurture growth in us and a wide and deep generosity of spirit. And what identity shall we have? What self do congregations choose to be? Here, our stories, those of our individual lives and our congregation story and David's story all merge as one. Because the story of David with Bathsheba and David's murder of Uriah to cover his sin shows us God's truth. We don't choose a self. That's a cultural lie. We don't choose a self. God gives us our identity. And we forget that just as David did at our peril. We are not prepared for what we see in David in this narrative. What began as a lustful whim develops into this enormous sex and murder crime spree. How does that happen? As with most sins, very gradually. The key word in this whole chapter is the seemingly innocuous word, send. But as the narrative goes on, we begin to realize that send is not a morally neutral word in the context of David's life. Earlier in David's youth, God sent for David through the voice of Samuel. David was sent for and was anointed as God's own. David was sent to Saul's camp. David was sent out to fight the Philistine Goliath. But now, as one scholar notes, the word send lets us trace David's descent from love and obedience to a position outside and above others, barking orders, trying to control everything, so far from God. The narrative begins with that telling phrase, in the spring of the year, the times when kings go to battle, David sent Joab. It picks up momentum when David sent to inquire about Bathsheba. The plot thickens when David sent for Bathsheba. And soon after, ominously, Bathsheba sends word to David. From there, the die is cast in a series of ruthless moves by David. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. After David arranged the murder of Bathsheba's husband, David sent for Bathsheba and married her. This absolute tailspin only ends with one final send in the story. God emerges in the midst of the wreckage of this story, and the text tells us, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
And right there, that's the end of David trying to be his own God the master of his own fate, the keeper of his own agenda, the arbiter of what the work was he had to do, and the others he was gonna love, and the self he had decided to be. Nathan, sent by God, reminds David the truth with which none of us can live without. God is God, and we are not. When we try to be God, even in the smallest corner of our life, when a church tries to be God, even in the smallest corner of our church life, things quickly become lost. We become lost in foolishness and destruction. When we try to rely on our own power, our own wits, our own intellect, our own purview, our own agenda, we will no longer remember who we are. The truth that emerges from this wreckage is among the most important truth in all of scripture. David's sin was enormous, but even still, it was wildly outdone by God's grace. God's grace is like breathing for us. It's everything we need, and that which we can't live a day, we can't live an hour, we can't live a moment without. What David did, no less the destruction uh, he brings about around him, can never be minimized or diminished. But even with that enormity, it is minuscule compared to God's grace. The text, after all this, does not concentrate on the sin. It's always a mistake for us. We love concentrating on sins, mostly other people's sins, but also our own sins. We love that. God never concentrates on the sin. God's work is the main event. Our sins are not that interesting, frankly. God's work, that is interesting. God's work leads us through our years from the waters of baptism on And because of that, because of God, because of God's grace, we are given work to do. We are given others to love. And most crucially, we are given a self to be. With thanksgiving and grace, we get to do what David did after all this pain and destruction. David gets to rediscover the gift of his life. And so do we. In his repentance, David prayed exactly what we get to pray every single morning when we arise. You are my stronghold and my life, O God. In you I put my trust, and in you, O God, I put my whole life. If we can truly pray that, then you have to ask, Where is God sending your whole life today? 